food waste and food insecurity. It's like, wow, this is a really hard supply chain and logistics problem. There's plenty of food actually to go around, but how do you get it to the people that need it at the time, in the place in which they need it, in the variety in which they need it? And yet all of this is alive, right? It's time bound. This is Jenny Du, Vice President of Operations and one of the founders of Appeal, a company that creates an invisible layer covering produce so it lasts longer. Instead of rotting within one day, your avocado would last much longer. And the inspiration for this idea came by looking at nature itself. A big piece of what's done after harvest is focused around keeping that produce cold in order to maintain that freshness and quality throughout the rest of the supply chain. So that's really what sparked for us this idea of like, how does produce protect itself? As plants had evolved from being underwater to being on the surface of the earth, we've all developed a skin, a peel of some kind that helps us retain moisture and fight that dehydrating environment that's on the surface of the planet. Looking at the natural peel of fresh produce is really where the inspiration for peel has come from, a way to take materials found already in the food that we already eat, but repurpose it on the surface of fresh produce as a coating in order to retain moisture and reduce oxidation. And then you can carry that protection from the time it's applied all the way through the supply chain to the end consumer. And it can either be a way to complement the current supply chain practices like having a cold chain, but also in a lot of supply chains, and depending on what markets you're in, that cold chain may not be very reliable the infrastructure may not even exist. So the ability to provide that protection end-to-end -end is also valuable in those more challenged supply chains. So maybe in summary, it's like a little extra peel added to the natural peel that's already there in fresh produce. Appeal has been backed by Oprah and Katy Perry in a 250 million Series E round. Jenny believes the answer to food scarcity is not producing more, but using more of what we already have. In this interview, you'll find out why oranges that you have been eating have probably been gassed with something called ethylene, how invisible coating can help produce stay fresh, and how supply chains need to change to adapt to the food waste issue. Let's jump right in. This is Bread to Grain the audiobook-style podcast where food tech meets sustainability. You're listening to Season 4 on Food Waste. To support our work, please subscribe and share the episodes with your colleagues and friends. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. It's about balancing supply and demand and getting it to where it needs to go because a lot of that can be attributed to stress, like from evaporation of water, loss of water from that produce, as well as oxidation to the environment. And what is this peel made of? So you can source it from materials like seeds, peels, pulp of fruits and vegetables that we already eat. Uh, they're lipid-based materials. And so that's what we repurpose ultimately, or source and repurpose on the surface like a coating. You can find a peel-treated produce that is for avocados, limes, mandarins, oranges, lemons, organic apples, actually, and coming forward soon with cucumbers, for example, the replacement for the plastic shrink wrap that comes on cucumbers. Interesting. Do you happen to have a patent on it? Yeah. So for us, our patent family covers a variety of things from the composition of the materials, but also through to kind of the unique benefits that they can provide. Yeah. And how would I know if I'm in my produce department, I'm, I'm looking through mandarins, how would I know if it's been treated with appeal? This is Jesse Horseman, senior producer of the season who joined me for this episode. 
Sure. So for us, we do look to label the peel-treated produce with our logo that shows up somewhere on, let's say, the, the stickering that might be provided with the PLU number. And then a peel logo serves two different purposes. In one case, regardless of what it's made out of, the safety of that and the benefits, you may just want to be able to make an informed consumer-based decision about what you do or don't want on your produce. The flip side to it is that we hope that actually being able to see a peel produce allows people to make the choice that as part of their normal routine by choosing your peeled products, that you know that you'll be offsetting like water and, and greenhouse gas, for example, emissions. Talking to a friend of mine who was working in the field as a product manager or produce manager, rather, I've heard that certain types of fruit, for example, get sprayed to ripen. So, for example, bananas and oranges, when they arrive at the desired destination, they get sprayed and then they ripen within a very short time frame. Are you familiar with that? And can you maybe elaborate a bit about that? Yeah. So oranges versus bananas are actually two different categories. So some types of produce categories, when they're picked, they're ready to eat. And so citrus fruit goes into that category. They're not really fruits that get like better or different with time. They're so-called non-climacteric fruits, and some other examples are berries, melons, and pineapples. The last one is actually really surprising to me because I always thought that pineapples would ripen but apparently they don't. I have been fooled my entire life. So don't take the green ones, pick the yellow ones. Bananas may be a little bit more similar to avocados and what we call as climacteric fruit. So things that you cannot just sort of pick and when they're picked, they're ready to eat. You need to usually wait for them to ripen before they go through their full maturation process. And so what you see is actually that typically right now produce is picked and more so that it actually is transportable. So you'd rather transport in that avocado case something that's a little bit harder, a little bit easier to kind of withstand like mechanical damage and handling like throughout the process. That means that if that produce would be left to ripen longer, it would probably be more flavorful and also have more nutrients. But of course, it would be harder to keep fresh. Once the avocado is picked, there are two ways for it to ripen. You can either bring it home, it's still is rock solid green, but you might need to wait like several weeks before it actually naturally goes through its own ripening process. And this is the same thing where people might say, put your avocados in a little paper bag in order for it to ripen. And what's happening is that produce itself emits this molecule, it's a small gas called ethylene gas. But at the same time, when it picks up and it senses ethylene in its surrounding environment, it does what we call, it auto-catalyzes a ripening process. And so it's sort of like more ethylene begets more ethylene <laughs> and it triggers this mm -hmm. whole ripening process. But what can also then happen in other parts in the supply chain is you can accelerate that process by basically exposing the fruit to some of this ethylene gas in order to trigger the ripening process or accelerate it in some way, shape or form, depending on this, the strength of the ethylene dose. Most oranges you have eaten throughout your life have been treated with ethylene. But as we just found out, non-climactic fruits like oranges don't actually ripen after they have been picked. So ethylene shouldn't work, and it doesn't. It's used for a different purpose. Spraying oranges with ethylene produces a more uniform 
orange colored skin. So again, it's all about cosmetics to improve agricultural marketing. Throughout the supply chain, produce is put in different categories, usually determined by cosmetics. The intention in the packing house is to sort that produce by a variety of different specifications. It can be that sometimes over the course of transport from the field to the packing house that some of that produce may have spoiled. So that needs to get picked out. But also it's sorted by size, color, surface defects, for example, because unfortunately we as consumers have conditioned ourselves to walk into produce stores and see produce that's very uniform in its appearance on the grocery store shelf. And so that is what happens in these packing houses is actually saying, you know what, this size, this classification, this color even, this is what is going to go to this retailer. This other retailer prefers this kind of a slightly different format, restaurants and wholesale or whatever may take these other categories. All produce actually gets sized and sorted in this way. Mm. Yeah, I've heard quite a lot about that from a number of different sources, including those who are doing logistics. And they'll say that truckloads of produce might be stuck at a border and for days at a time until it can be inspected until, as you said, to check the sprouts on the the potatoes, you know, I imagine this person with a little ruler comes around and measures them all. But until they have the ability to do that, they stay on these trucks. And if the cold chain breaks down, or if it's particularly hot that day, they might actually waste an entire truck load of Mm -hmm. potatoes or apples at the border because they, they won't be let in. You mentioned peel, the coating and ethylene. Um, which is used to ripen fruit. How do those two interact? So how does a peel work with the ripening of fruits? Does it essentially extend the period of time that my avocado is rock hard and then extend the period of time, which in my experience has been about 12 minutes where it's ripe and then it becomes (laughs) overripe? How does it work? Yeah. So a peel, we'll talk about this case, let's say first, like without ethylene, and then we'll introduce ethylene back in. So you can think of like, because a peel is applied and it stays with that fresh produce kind of throughout its whole life, almost like all the stages that it might go through all get elongated in some proportional amount. And so for an avocado that may not be externally triggered with ethylene, then the period in which it stays uh, hard and green will be longer. But then it also means that the period in which it is kind of going through ripening and is in the perfect ripeness, like window stays longer and how it might sort of fall off the cliff at the end. We we give it a little parachute to try to slow that down. (laughs) But with something like ethylene as a tool anyways in the packing house, you can think about it as push the fast forward button and then come back into that elongated time again. So in this particular case, what we find is more so that the ethylene ripening will happen sometimes before, sometimes after the application of appeal. But because you can actually control how far you push the ethylene triggered ripening. So avocados, for example, in firmness, they're measured in like a stage, like one, two, three, four, five, and like three and four is kind of what you really want to have in the grocery store that if you take it and you push it a little, squeeze it a little bit that you're like, oh, it's giving a little bit, not too rock hard and not totally squishy. And so you can go and say like, I know I want to ripen from a, like a stage two to three or two to four. So you, you know, you've got a knob there. And so what we come back out of it is now you've had your ethylene triggered or ethylene ripened avocado that also carries an appeal coating. And the transition now from four to five and beyond is slowed down. 
I would find it really interesting to talk a bit more about the supply chain and how freshness is managed, because it seems a bit like a black box, how this whole massive system is managed, where produce is coming from a variety of places from all over the world, shipped by different means, then aggregated and sorted, and throughout the, the whole time under a certain temperature certain conditions and how long it takes for everything is affecting who wants to buy it and what the quality is. So can you maybe share some insights into what you found interesting about looking into the supply chain? Yeah, I just remember because like, going back to like we were material scientists, none of us have come from the food industry and we have learned so much <laughs> over the course of this it's just like you just keep peeling the layers back it's just like pretty astounding what's had to come to get in order for us to get produce or food in general like onto our tables there's a global trade it's not just at any sort of local level and so there are un standards that help provide at least a, a starting baseline for the specifications of produce and so this is so that there isn't also an unfair trade advantage or like a misapplication so yeah, it's as crazy as like if you were to have potatoes that you know the little eyelets that can sprout like they can't have sprouted by more than whatever length you know like yeah. so it's it's, <laughs> it's hyper specific and the uniformity in the color that sizes are sort of within a certain amount so you see it for all different kinds of highly traded categories especially that there actually are they're called like un like ece standards or codex stand for this produce when you kind of get into a certain supply chain you're going like oh how much of this is kind of arbitrary one of our own employees is an apple grower in our part in like washington state where the u.s apples are it's like apple country and <laughs> it's been pretty crazy like this has been a really hot season and what you see is it affects the you know cherries were on the tree at the time apples were about to come in and certainly like a major stress a major acceleration almost a compression of that of that season and what they'll tell us is i've got a lot of fruit that stays on the trees that i would say is like eating quality but isn't going to meet the market specifications especially for appearance and defects and so it doesn't find a home To me, it's just incredibly sad. As a grower, you have to make a decision. I, I have to pay for the labor, right, to have this produce picked. But I, I don't know that if I'm going to find a market for it, basically, because I, I know what the specifications are that will be demanded. I know this is outside of that. Am I going to really try my luck? to see if maybe this was like a really hard season and everyone had to loosen their standards a little bit more in order to get fruit. Well, I'm going to have to take all of those risks up front and I don't know if I'm going to find a market for it and I, can I afford to take those kinds of losses. But in a in an also crazy and sad way, it takes money to handle the waste in order to even just have that produce come off the trees, be plowed back into the ground in order to basically compost like back into the soil. The equipment to do that and still the people to do that and then the supplies to do that also costs money. So I think that goes back to maybe a part of what we've talked about earlier. It's just like it is this massive like matching supply and demand yeah. and this crazy like logistics game because the food is out there <laughs> and food for everyone to eat and uh, food that could find a good home. But this economic like equation definitely plays into whether or not it can find the right home. I'm wondering if you've seen business models that address the issue of having the 
imperfect produce. One business model that's very common, and we've seen it in the US and in Europe, is to sell boxes with imperfect produce. But then it is a solution, but it's not scaling it as big as it could be. Whereas maybe it would make sense to have something like a proper platform where farmers can say, I have 40,000 apples with these specifications and then find somebody outside of the UN regulations who would be willing to use that and make some apple pies out of it. Have you seen solutions that you found viable? I think it's very similar to your point. Everyone with a food waste problem is trying to figure out how to achieve scale right now. So it's an interesting point you mentioned with regards to helping to find a market. I haven't seen it yet. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It's kind of part of our continuous like, learning and discovery because there's so much emerging technology and solutions that are coming forward. So it'd be interesting to see something like that. So maybe for listeners, explore the opportunity of having a B2B platform in the imperfect food space. And in the end, we are talking about the issue of produce going bad overall. What are other ways in which this problem can be managed? For example, I'm thinking about the option of genetic modification, and I'm wondering how much genetic modification has been used to extend shelf life. Yeah, this isn't an area that appeals directly active in. However, what we've seen just in the food space itself is it's definitely a a practice that's in more of the the grains and let's say like large cereal and row crops side of things in order to bring in characteristics related to drought resistance, insect resistance, like so on and so forth. We haven't seen as much of that in the fresh produce space to date, but I think some of the first varietals, one of them called like an Arctic apple, has kind of been brought forward. But they can be brought forward for a variety of reasons and not necessarily like waste related. Sometimes it's to offer a different sort of flavor and visual profile because folks are still looking for ways to like differentiate fresh produce. Otherwise, really is this commodity category. And so how do you create a a new branded offering? Apples are kind of actually really special. Apples are the only ones where we say, oh, you know, I want a Envy apple. I want a Royal Gala apple. I want a Fuji apple. I want an Arctic apple. But everything else we say, I'm going to the store for blueberries. I'm going to the store for oranges. I'm going to the store for mandarins. Turns out all those same names that I just named for apples is also true for the different varietals of fresh produce that's offered in all of the other produce categories. Like many, many tens of, sometimes hundreds of (laughs) varietals that are out there. Yeah. So in summary, in fresh produce, we haven't seen as much of it yet today. Hard to say maybe where that's exactly going because there's resistance, consumer education resistance to overcome with regards to genetic modification and gene editing. Uh, So I think that's something that's important for us to look towards in the future because the pressures, certainly for growing fresh produce and reducing waste are only continuing to increase. So I think it's an important consideration in the toolbox. Why do you think that apples, for instance, we know, I mean, you're right. I knew every single version of an apple you just mentioned. Golden Delicious is my favorite. But why do we know that about apples, but not about blueberries? It was a very intentional consumer education and marketing attempt, you know, to differentiate and offer different varietals. And if you were the retailer that carried a new varietal, it was like a way to distinguish yourself as well. And so I think that hasn't maybe gained the same traction 
Yeah. You've got some really impressive organizations that both helped fund Appeal early on, as you mentioned, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And also, you've gotten some really good nods from uh, high-level or celebrity philanthropists. Can you talk a little bit about how those relationships came about and where society is in terms of thinking about food waste as a problem? Yeah, maybe because we have a lot of food waste startups uh, listening, specifically, how can they get them? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a little bit more direct. (laughs) Yeah, you know, that's totally fair. And I mean, first of all, kudos to everybody who's looking to enter into the space. Some companies might, in their early stages, be able to what we call in the US bootstrap. Like, how can you get yourself going? We maybe not need to like friends and family related funding or your own funding. And like, we didn't have any of that. (laughs) And so the grant funding definitely was very valuable. The grant funding for us is non-dilutive, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation side. So we didn't have to give up a certain proportion of ownership or control in the organization in order to get access to those funds. And it was also very helpful around gaining traction with your early investors. So this is literally when you're just seeking angel investors. You, all you have is an idea on, on a paper and nothing, nothing more. And so having some grant funding was helpful because it de-risked the prospect a little bit to those angel investors. Because you have people who will circle and they're interested, but it's really hard to be the first person who says, I'm willing to commit and support. You'll ask, people ask, oh, well, who else is interested? And then suddenly, if you can name enough people, then you there's this like fear of missing out momentum that feeds itself. And people are like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Someone else is vetted for this. I might be more comfortable with that idea. No one would admit it maybe in that way, but I think that's how it's played out. And so mm-hmm. with the grant, that's very helpful because somebody else has basically put your idea through some kind of evaluation process and has decided, you know what? There could be some teeth to this. And we're willing to put uh, a bet on it. And so that was very helpful to us in the early stages. And so the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation grant, there was also an opportunity for follow-on grant funding if you had demonstrated success in the early phases and other grants that also very helpful at that time. Where we are today, I think the landscape has totally changed. When we first started and were first incorporated, food waste was just sort of starting to murmur (laughs) on the scene. And now today you see actually a tremendous amount of investment and whole investment portfolios almost being created to address food tech and ag tech. It's been really important to be able to talk about that whole network of players in this food supply chain and being really clear about the solution, the problem that you're specifically trying to solve or the group that you are uniquely addressing. And so as part of that, you're almost educating new investors that are coming into the space who may be less familiar with it. And so talking about the overall food ecosystem, how the parts play together, what your company, for example, is specifically looking to address within that so that you're not lost so much like maybe in the noise and in the complexity. That's at least, you know, for us been very helpful talking about our solution very uniquely, what it is and what it isn't being very clear about that. Right. So Jenny, if you had 50 million to invest in a business without directing that towards appeals, you had to go somewhere else. What would you invest in that's not limited? You can go anywhere. It doesn't have to be food, food tech. Hmm. For me personally, I would drive it back fundamentally to what helps us from a climate change perspective. That's maybe my core tenant right now. And when you look at it, food waste reduction is still the area that's going to have the biggest impact as far as carbon potential drawdown. It's interesting that you mention Project Drawdown, which is generally a pretty good resource to understand 
what can really help address climate change. But I find that they do not mention animal agriculture replacement in any significant way. They do mention, I think, silvopasture, which is integrating cattle in a more regenerative agriculture style of farming. But then I would dare to say that replacing meat consumption mostly with plant-based and cell-based products could actually have an even higher impact on greenhouse gas emissions. Would you agree with that or do you have a different viewpoint? I totally agree with that. (laughs) I don't know if that cuts the conversation short, but it just seems, I mean, we just know how call it like resource inefficient it is to convert plant-based food and land into the animal-based protein, at least in the ways in which we do it today. Yeah, I I just couldn't agree with you more. (laughs) And what is another controversial or unusual opinion that you hold regarding food sustainability, agriculture? I don't know that it's controversial, but we as consumers drive more influence than we think we do. Just going back to the topic on specifications of produce, like those are based on the purveyors of food believe we like want. Perfect produce, highly uniform produce, for example. And then same thing with regards to our own choices. And it's not to say that you may need to be as extreme as going to an all vegan or plant-based like diet to have an impact. But if you don't believe that your choices will make a difference, we're in a bad spot. <laughs> it's like the multiplicative effects of our collective choices that will move things uh, in a certain direction. But at the same time, what's problematic about it is what we state our values to be as consumers versus what our actions actually are can be strongly at odds with each other because you often will make a decision that can favor your own personal comfort and desires over what you know to be the better choice. So I think that's probably our biggest uh, hurdle to overcome is how do we align our values with our actions just ever increasingly more closely with each other. Jenny, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Before we go, how can listeners connect with you? Yeah, I'm like not the greatest social media user, so I'll just kind of like this full disclosure, but (laughs) please do come and find Appeal though on Instagram and Twitter. And so for example, for Instagram at like Appeal underscore sciences. So if you look us up there or come to our website, appeal.com, A-P-E-E-L.com, you'll find a, a variety of ways to connect with us. Yeah. Can listeners reach out to you via LinkedIn? Yes. Yes, of course. Jenny Dew, pretty easy. J-E-N-N-Y-D-U. And you're looking for my affiliation with Appeal and should be able to find me there too. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. When I first started Red to Green, I was amazed. Wow, this is so much work. And it's made possible by a dedicated, smart ninja team. If you enjoy our work, please take a minute to share it online, send it to friends or colleagues who would appreciate the episodes. Let's spread the message and let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.